0: California.
1: Hey now, Cindy Thomas here on Petaluma's homegrown radio station.
2: I've always got a real...
1: Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. So welcome to our program today, and uh, we're here to meet two people in the two segments who oh, have some something to offer our community in uh, different ways and sometimes in the same ways. So I'd like to welcome to our studio Kayleen Osbo, who I had the privilege of meeting at St. John's Episcopal Church a couple of weeks ago uh, when there was an evening of Music and poetry commemorating Kristallnacht and uh, remembering the people who were murdered at the synagogue in Pittsburgh a little over a year ago. So, Kayleen, welcome, welcome to the studio.
2: Thank you so much, Rabbi Ted.
1: It's good to have you here. So, our, our first uh, piece of all of this is to uh, get a little sense of your journey and who you are and uh, what you do.
2: Mm. Thank you. Um, well, I like to describe myself, first and foremost, as a curious pilgrim who is chasing beauty around the world and trying to find ways that that can bring healing and hope into our community. Um, officially, I am the cultural historian for the Santa Rosa Symphony, and I'm a pre-concert lecturer for the Mendocino Music Festival and the San Francisco Opera, but for the focus of much of my work is finding a way to use music not as entertainment, but to use music as healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for myself in my own journey, music was literally what kept me alive as a teenager. And knowing that music has the power to do that, um, I want to both preserve it as the treasure it is. Um, I'm a pianist and the classical music lover, so passing that on to the next generation is really important to me, but also to use music in the ways that the ancient Greeks used music, which is as medicine for healing the things that ail us and for balm um, that we can pour into our deepest wounds when we're suffering from despair or grief, and then as a way for community to come together. So the focus of much of my work has been the creation of a company that I call Mythica, which integrates story and song and the arts and weaves them together in classes, concerts, and then experiential cultural journeys to Europe. And to bring those together so that we have a sense of both an inner journey and connecting to other people in community.
1: Wow. That's a lot. Just a quick question on that. What what does a cultural historian for the symphony do? (laughs) I just have a lot of fun. (laughs) Before before we uh, explore the other stuff, right?
2: Yes. So there's two aspects to that. Uh, One of uh, the aspects is that for each upcoming program, I have created 10-minute videotapes that show the story behind the music that we're going to hear in the concert hall. So, for example... This weekend, the featured concert is of Mozart's Requiem. But in classes and clips that I provide, um, there is the backstory about how the Requiem was written during Mozart's lifetime as he was literally on his deathbed and to bring the story of that piece to life and to to highlight things um, to listen for in the concert. I'm also in charge of writing some of the program descriptions. So um, being able to put in words what the music is trying to express in sounds is part of my job description. Wow.
1: And you also have a doctorate, I believe.
2: I do. My doctorate is in mythological studies with an emphasis in depth psychology. Mm -hmm. So it was um, a fancy way of saying comparative religion with an uh, emphasis on how that's been expressed through the centuries in the arts. Wow.
1: Wow. That's, That's a lot.
2: It was a fun experience, a wonderful right. journey.
1: So, how, how do you think? You know, you alluded to music not just for entertainment mm-hmm. purposes. So, when you look at the music in America, and I realize there are all different components mm-hmm. to it: the rock music and pop music and everything. What do you? What's your observation about it? Because it's highly entertaining.
2: We really—that's right. I think that we've really lost something uh, with its emphasis on only the entertainment function of music. Um, There are other places and other times where this has happened. Actually, if you study the ebbs and flows of history, you find some fascinating things. For example, in ancient Greece, in order for priests of Apollo to become doctors, they had these healing sanctuaries called the Asclepians, which were sort of their version of healthcare clinics um, in the ancient world. And in order to become a physician at one of those, you actually had to have studied music for seven years because it was thought that the musical prescription that you gave was every bit as important as what you might give your patient with a combination of herbs. And in our own time, one of the really hopeful things is we're seeing a resurgence of this attitude. There are places like the Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine in Boston, where they're finding, um, in the past two decades, an extraordinary connection between music and well being, whether that is music as a way of fighting depression or music as um, as a bulwark, uh, something that will actually help slow the onset of Alzheimer's and dementia. And there's some fascinating material that's coming up that we actually have really strong scientific evidence for that properly applied. Certain kinds of music can do all kinds of miraculous things, Rather than from everything from reducing our reliance on analgesics and things that will cut pain um, in surgery, to helping with post-op, pre-op, with ADHD. So um, one of my other backgrounds is I have a master's degree in psychology, and I taught um, music and psychology for almost 20 years at the San Francisco Conservatory. And I'm fascinated about this interface, about how music can be medicine. Um, So in our own community, one of um, the ways that I really am longing to bring that to Petaluma is through the creation of something called Music is Medicine, where I'm going to be bringing students from Sonoma State as well as professional musicians to go and perform in memory care facilities um, and into homeless shelters and into hospices. Um, There was a whole art in the medieval period of the kind of music, learning the skills that you needed in order to help someone transition as they died. And this is this whole field called music thanatology has been rediscovered also in the past few decades. So I'm yearning to bring this information together and into the community in a way that bridges the generations.
1: You know, you triggered in my mind a memory. Uh, I had a member of my community who was uh, dying, and I was there with the family as that was happening, and I asked, What music? did he like, uh, and they said Phantom of the Opera, and I found it on my phone, and I put it up to his ear, and it played for half an hour or so, and I have no idea, of course, what was going on inside of him, but the fact that that was something that uh, he listened to frequently, and I can only hope that it was easing him in this transition for him in life. Yes, I understand that.
2: I would think so. There's a couple of books that have been recently published that actually talk about that, about people who literally have been brought back from the edge of death by having music that mattered to them put in iPads in their ears. And there's a fascinating documentary called Alive Inside, which was, I think, the last film that the neurologist Oliver Sacks made that shows vividly some of the most remarkable effects of music. So to all of the listeners out there, I would encourage you to think about making a playlist, to make a playlist of the music that most matters for you. And I like to tell my students to make two, to make one playlist of things that relaxes and calms them, and another playlist of things that energizes and excites them. So that when you're in the doldrums of despair, you know, I, for me, the Bach Brandenburg Concertos is, is more potent than two cappuccinos in terms of getting my energy up. Um, and it will be different for every individual, but to have those playlists is really important. To bring those with you when you go, and you go into the doctor's office for surgery. I um, I was deeply moved that. Um One of my students asked for one of my c d s to take into open heart surgery, and he said, "If I die, I at least am dying to the sounds of something that i love and Then afterwards, he said that he thought that it really helped him um in his procedure, so find the music that matters to you and make sure that your family and friends know what that is Oh
1: wow, that's an amazing message uh i was you know I've been told that hearing is one of the quote last things to go as we transition and so that process of having the music there would be important.
2: It's so true, and it's actually one of the first things that we have. Babies in utero can hear long, and, and they recognize their parents' voice at birth, but they can't recognize their face for months. So if you think about how important it is that it's one of the very first senses, hearing and smell when we come out of the womb, or how we know the world, much earlier than sight, and it is, in fact, one of the very last things to go. They've also found in research, and I found this fascinating, that with Alzheimer's patients, the patients would forget the names of the people that they loved if they said them. But if they sang them, the memory endured. So to turn everything into a song um, around you. Um, I imagine many of our listeners can remember television jingles for when we were children, or th- unfortunately for me, the theme song for Gilligan's Island is stuck in I my long term memory break. <laughs> you know, but if we turn if we if we apply that creatively and we put the mote messages that we most want to remember, if we put those words to song, well, that memory will last far, far longer because it goes so deeply inside the brain
1: so what is there? you think about music? What, what is the it mm-hmm. that does make that difference?
2: I think there's um, two things. Music is one of the only subjects, I believe poetry is the only other one, that fires on both the left hemisphere, which is our analytical brain, and the right hemisphere, which is our more imagistic and creative side of our brain. And so with song, where you set lyrics to music in particular, what you have is both sides of your va- brain going full blast, which is so different than how we usually process information. We usually are on one side or the other. But even more deeply than that is the fact that music hits the limbic system, the emotional core of our being. And we we can know this so vividly because so many of us, I imagine everyone who's listening has a song in which all you need are a few notes and it might bring a lump to your throat, that it brings back this depth of memory because, um, because it's not simply rational explanation. It's not cognition. It's a fusion of the intellectual capacity with the heart. It's the place where the head and the heart come together. And that's what makes it so powerful. Um, I think that that's also one of the reasons why another um, aspect of music is that it literally has the capacity to change the world. I think many of your listeners could remember back to the 60s and imagine what would the 60s have been without the folk music movement and would, you know, the Vietnam War catalyzed the protests catalyzed around so many of the singers. The same thing was true um, during the Civil War um, with the song Amazing Grace, which was woven into um, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, production on stage of Uncle Tom's Crab Cabin. And that song was the climactic finale that moved everybody from looking at a drama on stage to really feeling it in their bones. So when Abraham Lincoln met her, he he shook her and he said, "So you're the little woman who has started this great big war." But it was really the power of music in that production that moved people's hearts, and we see that over and over and over again: the rallying cry of the Fifth Symphony during wartime, or the Ninth Symphony as people come together with Beethoven. Um, music to change people's minds, music to change people's hearts, and music in which there is neither Republican nor Democrat, neither male nor female, neither old nor young, but everyone coming together to sing something where they find their place together. So
1: what would this um, music and medicine look like in Petaluma? What what are you hoping to come through with that?
2: Well, there's, there's three initiatives that um, I'm spearheading. One of them is um, to extend the Musical Mondays program that I have at the Petaluma Historical Library and Museum. We follow the journey of art and music as it is what I call an alchemical journey, these stories of people who, in the depths of despair, have put their grief, their sorrow, or some cases even their outrage, into music and had it become a vehicle of beauty and healing. And so I'm delighted that next semester I'll be um, joining the Mythica team at the Petaluma Historical Library Museum. will be 10 Sonoma State music students who will be performing as part of that story. As part of our work there, the dress rehearsals for those classes and for concerts will be held in hospitals, in senior centers, and in schools. And then on January 31st, we're going to literally take to the streets of Petaluma for what we're going to call Schubert on the Streets. And that is to involve everything from young music students and choirs to really amazing professionals to literally hit the streets of Petaluma and perform on the street corners and bring this great treasury of classical music into our community, accessible to everyone. And so those three things, the museum, the music on the streets and then actually going as music is outreach and medicine into the communities and pulling together a group of musicians to develop the tools to be with people in illness and even in death where they're using music as a bridge to hope, healing, or surrender.
1: I hope to see more uh, advertising about the January 31st event because that should be a, a beautiful addition to our city. So, uh, we met at uh, St. John's Episcopal Church, and uh, I got there because my friend and colleague uh, Reverend Daniel Green said oh, I should be there. Mm-hmm. Okay, I trust him fully, so mm-hmm. I was there and totally overwhelmed. What went into mm-hmm. producing that? What What motivated you, and where Where did that come from?
2: Well, I think one of the things that we lack so often in our culture are memorials of grief, of coming together. And my friend and mentor, Francis Weller, who's an extraordinary therapist and writer who's written on this subject extensively, talks about the, the lie of private grief, that when we try to hold grief privately, it's too heavy for any of us. And that the only way that we can make our way through the world is by coming together communally. Um, personally, I have felt the ache and the anguish of what has been done throughout history, Um, tragically, very often in the name of Christianity um, to the rest of the world, and particularly to the Jewish people. And I I hold that very, very close to my heart. And um, so when the synagogue shootings happened last year, I was profoundly affected. I was deeply affected. And I wanted to make a public statement of solidarity with my Jewish brothers and sisters and to honor their grief, but to also find a way um, to honor beauty and to have beauty hold us. So what I wanted to do was to bring together to create a collective lamentation. and. Part of that lamentation is specifically for the day that this even song fell on 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 Kristallnacht and the memory of those who were shot at the Tree of Life. But it was also to honor Jewish poets and music from the Jewish culture because I think one of the things that Judaism does so beautifully is the tradition of the Kaddish and that they actually have built in that idea that you know, your grief doesn't go away the next week, that there needs to be the whole year of remembering and holding close to your hearts those who've passed, and then to honor them at that memorial seemed just right and fitting to do so, and just to bring together a group of people who are of all different um, faiths. You know, we have Christians, we have Buddhists, we have um, Unitarians, but to collectively to honor and bear witness to the grief of our Jewish brothers and sisters. So I was so grateful that you were there, and that we could have that ritual of singing together, of the music of Catherine Drozlovsky, whose grandparents were Russian Jews, Um, and she comes from Paris, and she had written a song in her own memorial song for those who had been shot in Paris, tragically, Um, because I think in song and in these rituals, we find our common humanity, and we can really open our hearts to feel that in a way that's so important to remember amidst the divisiveness of our world. So I'm so grateful that you were there and that you were part of this. It was profoundly important to me. And
1: and I'm so grateful that it took place and that I had the privilege to be there. And on behalf of my community, I want to thank you and, uh, through you, all of the people who made it happen. Uh, Amazing uh, poetry, amazing music. Uh, that filled that filled that room, uh, and it was it was a very profound. Evening. So just to say thank you, thank you so much for doing that, and um, you know it, it it fits in that uh, this music as medicine to a certain extent or the healing process because uh, as you're well aware the, with the rise of antisemitic incidents and stuff like that, many people in the Jewish community are uncomfortable, nervous overwhelmed at times by what's going on and uh, to have an occasion like that and for me to be able to come back to my broader community and report on it and share the feeling of what happened that night. Uh, the ripple effects of what happened that evening really stand to provide healing and uh, hope uh, for people.
2: That was my, my deepest desire. Good,
1: good. I'm so glad that that, that was there. So. Kind of getting back to some of the other pieces, and kind of you know classical music, uh, which I love and uh, appreciate. Uh, I can't say I'm an expert on it. I listen to it because I like to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the other music of American culture fit in? How do you when, when you hear that other music? Mm-hmm. What do you experience mm-hmm. when you you hear uh, hip hop? I mean all the Different genres of American music now, and how they're affecting our younger people, and the language, and the sexuality, and the mm-hmm. the, the conflicts that are being portrayed in them. Mm-hmm. What, what do you what do you think, What's your take on all that?
2: Well, I have. I'm holding the tension of two things. Um, on the one hand, I think ever since I've been a teenager, I've actually been alarmed at the messages as a woman that much of the popular music. Um, sends out um and certainly with um younger brothers who were enamored of rap music for a while when i've I've listened to that it the messages um frankly you know they they really do disturb me I think, but at the same time that I'm holding that, I had to laugh when I was reading some works in which it said, the music of the youth is nothing but moral decay.' And I noticed that it had been something that was written in the fifth century BC. So, um, so there's always been those debates of things. Um, there's cert- classical music alone, it certainly is not alone in in having a depth of emotional expression. I think of the power of the blues to give voice to py- just grief and sorrow and lamentation, and how profound that is. And um, that different people will find their balm in different ways. Um, there's there is another aspect, though, that as as someone who studied classical music my whole life, I also am so awestruck by the the actual construction of how a piece of music is created, a symphonic work of art, and that there's a kind of intellectual development there that is is truly truly. Extraordinary, but we often in our modern culture it's almost like we've lost the Rosetta Stone, we don't know how to translate that, we don't know how to find our way into its complexities, into its mysteries. So that's part of my right. role. So,
1: so, where does joy fit mm-hmm. in to the classical Newton? Yes.
2: Well. I think that joy is, is, is absolutely one of the things that is most celebrated in in that I, I, that genre. That if you listen, whether it's Box Brandenburg's or Beethoven's Ode to Joy, yeah. um, which is the great triumphant Universal song, or Max Richter's Spring, I'm going to invite all of your listeners to go Google him and listen to that piece and just see if you can keep your feet from topping. I, I have watched people from 4 to 84 just burst into irrepressible joy unable to not dance when they listen to Max Richter's spring. So it's there. And it's also, again, the head and the heart together. It's working at our brains and at levels that we can measure now um, scientifically that show that everything's lighting up that can lead to brain health, but also emotional well-being.
1: So um, as we reach our concluding moments here, could you um, talk a little bit about But you'd like the listeners to uh, come to the museum,
2: to do a little advertising for some of the
1: things you're doing.
2: those of you who are listening right now, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is to um, to go to my website, Kayleen Asbo, K-A-Y-L-E-E-N-A-S-B-O dot com, and you'll find a full listing of events in the, the Bay Area, including Musical Mondays at the Petaluma Historical Library and Museum, 1030 to noon, most Monday mornings. We have two upcoming sessions on Beethoven. Um, And then Tuesday night at Sonoma State University at the Green Center at Schroeder Hall will be a celebration of the 200th anniversary of the extraordinary muse, musician, and composer, Clara Schumann, who was one of the most amazing people who's ever lived and whose music will probably bring tears to your eyes, a lump to your throat, and courage to your heart. 7.30 at the Green Music Center. And then, go hear the Santa Rosa Symphony this weekend, perform the Requiem, because it is an emotional odyssey from grief and lamentation to serenity and peace, and it will be brilliantly performed under our music director, Francesco Chong.
1: Well, Kayleen, also, I want to thank you for being with us on Talking with Rabbi Ted today, and I wish you well in all your journeys. I invite our listeners back for our second segment. In three minutes, you are listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. Again, I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of the Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. You're listening to KPCA 103.3 FM, Petaluma's Community Radio. So welcome back to our second segment. Um, I have uh, in the studio with me right now Randall Collin. Who is a resident of Petaluma, and we're going to find out more about him. Um, there'll be some sweet parts to our discussion. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, welcome. Great to have you me well, here. Good to have you here. So, my, my first question is always uh, who are you? Tell us a little bit about your journey and. Uh, the path in life and what what brought you into the studio today. a big, big question. Start with the
0: yeah. Start with the small stuff, right? Okay. The who am I? Who am I? I so saw that's my uh, meditation mantra. Okay, who is am
1: that, I? So. It's an important one. It's hard to forget sometimes.
0: Ramana Maharshi, right? Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. The maha mantra, the mother of all mantras.
1: Ah, who, who am I? I? Okay. Well, okay. Do your best
0: to explain yeah. it. Thank you. you. Are. Uh, well, what comes to mind, since that's all that uh, I can operate out of right now, is just being in the moment, is uh, I'm a wanderer. Uh-huh. And so I know uh, both my parents have very strong uh, roots into their Judaism, uh-huh. although I walked away from it when I was 12 and I began the wandering. Instead of they told me, do you want to get bar mitzvahed or do you want to sleep in? So, of course, I said I want to sleep in and uh, left that pathway I do remember in Contra Costa County, the synagogue I went to had a one-armed rabbi, which was quite wonderful to uh, hear him play guitar mm-hmm. and sing. So that was uh, one of the compelling reasons I continued in my uh, up to t- age 12. But then, wandering—I know the Jews have a lot of uh, history in wandering, wandered through the desert for 40 years. So I feel that that identifies me almost more than any other structure in my life. Uh, So I'm in that period again now, actually, big time. Uh, This is one of the biggest existential crises I've ever experienced, and I'm 71 now. So I would be curious, uh, among your listeners, if others are relating to this uh, existential crisis. I mean, I was a flower child. I really identified with all of the spirituality that came down the pipeline as I was growing up. Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism... Uh, Judaism, Christianity. I went and I studied with the Sufis for a while, so I was really an eclectic seeker, big time eclectic seeker. I uh, have had a lot of uh, originality in my life. I mean, I uh, graduated high school when I was 16, so I skipped two grades and I was considered a uh, prodigy. I don't know for what, but I was on TV when I was 14 on Science in Action. I uh, went to a uh, uh, I study beetles actually <laughs> uh, a tribolium confusing beetles an, another great oh book. i
1: thought you meant uh, the beetles beetles the that was Beatles. that was
0: actually my love my uh, my study in entomology was just one of a long series of interests that i've had when uh-huh. i went to college uh, age 16 i graduated college at age 19 with two uh, degrees uh-huh. one in psychology and one in greek So in my third year of college, I transferred from Reed College to UC Berkeley, and they gave Reed College credits more than UC Berkeley credits. So they said, okay, you've already fulfilled your major in psychology. You've got a freebie. So I went to storytelling class and fairy tales, and I got interested in Greek. And so I actually got a major in classical Greek. And the reason was because uh, I could smoke pot and look at Greek and understand what it said. So to this day, I don't know what was going on in my head, but I actually have a college degree in classical Greek, and I right, uh, today I can't fathom the Greek alphabet. I can hardly remember how it goes. But that speaks something to something's going on in my inner world that is tied into something much, much larger than myself. And I can't quite grasp it. I can't quite embrace it, and I never have. It's just changed me. About every seven years, I go through some sort of metamorphosis, And like I said, the one that's happening right now is the biggest one I've ever experienced, except that my faith is deeper. So I can say, okay, well, you know, it's happening again. I I hope the butterfly comes soon. (laughs) In the reformation, the recreation of a self that's closer and more aligned with my true self. Because, you know... uh, non-dualism, those ideas. Uh, I understand that there is a oneness, a field of being out of which we all operate, which is an authentic truth. It it is Adonai, it is God. It is all, uh, you know, appreciation that the Jews have about their uh, being tied into a oneness. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's in all of the religions and uh, I'm reminded that when I say for me, when I'm reminded of the Gary Larson cartoon of the gorillas eating the bananas, and one says to the other, I know all gorillas love bananas, but for me, it's very special.
1: <laughs> oh, so, the existential moment, right? Exactly. So, so for me,
0: for my life, right. in my search right. for God, this is a tremendous uh, period of wandering. And I, I think I was talking to Jim the other day that some part of me loves to get lost. Hmm. And so, because that love prevails, uh, I think I'm searching for the feeling of being found, you know, like an amazing grace. I once was lost and now I'm found. So, that feeling of being found again identifies with me, with my authentic self. Right. And
1: And maybe the liking being lost, it's only because it feels even better to be found. And so, to experience that being found has a more profound effect. If profound, exactly. No if intended. You're, right. right. If, you're, if you're lost first. So in our last segment, uh, I don't know if you heard part of it, but Kayleen Osbo uh, was talking about the healing power and the spiritual power of music. Yes. And music has played a role in your life, too. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? And we'll come back to some of the There's much of the same
0: themes overlie themselves in my relationship with music, uh, You get lost in music. A real good musician gets lost all the time. Mm -hmm. And then he finds modulation. It just comes to him intuitively. And he works his way to the next chord, the next musical phrase, whatever. So uh, the highest level of jazz musicians are living in this world which I aspire to,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: of just getting lost all the time in order to channel the expression of being found in music. Now, um, music is all about uh a feeling it's all about a language all about talking about a language uh, the feelings and when you're in the zone and you're communicating everybody's loving it everybody just loves great music no matter what style of music it is and i think it reflects that uh, modulation to a a zone that music expresses so i mean i would study uh jazz cuz it's i'm i'm a real intellectual uh at, part, uh, live in my mind a lot. and I love jazz theory about how it really explains, on some level, how m- music works. You know, the, uh, the chromatic scale, the diatonic, the way it modulates from key to key around a circle of fifths. All of that fascinated me, and it was the same yearning for an explanation of, myst- of the mystical. How do you get in the zone uh, in God's space? How do you right. how do you get, you get there? Get closer to God, and so my mind just said, "Okay, well, music will explain it. It's the language."
1: So it's interesting because Kaelin was talking about Greek, uh-huh. and that in ancient Greece, yes. music was a form of healing oh, yeah. and of medicine. Absolutely, and that the the priests had to go to school and learn music before they began to learn how to be priests because of the healing power of music. So when you said you were fascinated with Greek and then making this transition exciting. transition into talking now about the role of music in your life and the healing powers it's had yeah. for you in the zone and, and it's too big
0: to encompass in any one thought form. I mean music right. for example changed tremendously in box time when they tempered the scale I and mean, the Greeks were just dealing with the Pentatonic scale. Mm-hmm much simpler form of getting into the zone. But then uh, we've gotten very complex in our modern world, And but that brought forth the idea of just intonation and tempered intonation, a lot of very complex ideas, which I think translates also to attunement to God in our modern day. So it's not just what the Greeks were experiencing. We're a whole different civilization beyond that, and music, I think, holds keys to this intellectual fulfillment especially jazz and it's so it's a, it's a kind
1: of a combination of the intellectual but also the heart and the spiritual pieces of it there you go that 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 make it complete so when you say god what what do you think what what are you thinking about when you're saying god what does that mean to you
0: uh, <laughs> no, the it, it, two big a question. I want to go back to what you said about completion. And okay. one of my thoughts about uh, this search for completion. So the Jews wanted it for 40 years, right? 40 is a huge uh-huh. number of completion. You got to do it a long time. Right. A long, long time. So at 71, having gone through many different metamorphoses, I think I'm done. I think I've, I've found whatever it is that value of completion is. And I feel exhausted. I feel completely empty and more lost than ever before. Do
1: you know the Hebrew word for completion? Mm-hmm. No. It's the root of it? Shalom. Shalom. Peace. Yes. Peace. So the sense of completion means, the, word, the Hebrew word shalom is from the Hebrew root, which means to complete. Wonderful. And so it's interesting. I'm not sure what we think about when we think about the English word, I'm looking for peace or... May you have peace in your heart and all that. But in, in, in Hebrew, it means complete. That's beautiful. It means complete. Oh, harmony. Right. a harmony yes. that's involved. The harmony of music, the harmony of a oneness with oneself and God, yes. uh, oneness with the world around you and kindness and compassion and that we're all connected. That makes us complete.
0: Well, yes. Yes, and also... One of the most beautiful things I learned in uh, the Sufi tradition is when one of the guys said, there's either Allah or there's blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of your explanation of completion. Uh, I, I resonate with it completely. All of those words, shalom, peace, all of that. What I'm feeling is emptiness. I'm feeling more empty than ever before. Mm. And so there's a, a, I'm getting closer to a longing, a pure longing that's really lonely and deep, deep. But then I read, you know, solitude is not loneliness. They're different things. Mm-hmm. So in solitude, I'm finding something. And when I close my eyes, I see a big eye. It's the same as my human eye, but it's looking. <laughs> it's right. about two, minute, two inches away and it's looking at me.
1: Yeah. Well, in solitude, there is somebody there. There's you. somebody there. Me. You, right. you are there.
0: Well, this is all answer the answer to the question, what is God? Right. right so we're yes. answering your question.
1: Right. Of course, of course. And, uh, but everybody, everybody has um, different ideas about it. And, you know, I'm not sure everybody pursues um, the thought patterns that you're pursuing. I'm okay. not sure everybody walking down the street... Is searching. You know, there there are searchers in the world, yes. and there are people who have uh, found, or or just lived their lives in a way that their lives for them feel complete, and they they're not on that journey. Um, the forty years of wandering, actually in Jewish tradition, that is the forty years that are described in the Torah as the Israelites were wandering the wilderness. Was considered to be the idyllic time, the idyllic time, because in some ways needs were taken care of. God provided food and and all that for them, and it was a chance, uh, an option to grow, to learn, and to prepare to enter a place in the biblical sense, the promised land. And so. It's often idealized in the prophets as a time of, of great insight, yes. and a type of, because if we think we have it all, then we don't spend too much time thinking about what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one could look at wandering time as a negative and say, "I'm lost and it's terrible, right. and I can't." I wake up in the morning, I don't know what to do. That's not what you're experiencing.
0: Well, yes, it is and it's not. Absolutely not. Uh, I experience all of the feelings of loneliness, uh, desperation, exhaustion, things that are normally associated with... I mean, I was a clinical psychotherapist for a lot of years. I read a lot of books about Uh describing the blues. Uh And uh, this is something else. This is, uh, like I said, the hope, the, the sense... It's not even really hope, it's just... I've tried everything else. There's nothing left except the truth. And if the truth just is is existential, you know, there is you know, you don't have to conceptualize a god, it's just existence, right. this being. And it's just awareness of being. And that somehow uh refreshes me, relaxes me. And I think I look at this eye that's two inches away and I say, Yeah, i I or the the Jamaicans say the I and I, right? Uh-huh. The eye, the big eye. Uh, Carl Jung said the self and the small self and that small self decomposes or uh, uh, you know discombobulates and then reassembles itself closer uh, in proximity. Proximity is the word the Sufis use. Proximity—that's what it's all about—to this ex- existential state of being, this primordial state of awareness. So I think the. Uh, The metamorphosis I feel I've gone through many, many times, and this is the one on steroids, this is a big one, has to do with becoming nothing, becoming so empty in this desert we're talking about. I can recognize the feelings, the negative feelings, the dark feelings, but I can also recognize something else that you're also pointing to, the hope, the Opportunity. opportunity, whatever that is, the awakening. That's the best word i found for it, is the awakening that's possible in emptiness.
1: So, at one point in the Torah, God, uh, Moshe, Moses, asked God uh, to identify God's self. And God said, I am that I am. Beautiful. I am that I am. It's just pure, pure existence.
0: That's the answer to the mantra, who am I?
1: Pure, pure existence. It's pure existence. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, um, while you're doing this your existence. you ventured into some other Many, things. many fields. I'm telling you, right
0: after college, yeah. uh, I built houses. I built two houses, lived in the country, sold Christmas trees. Uh, I, then I moved to Madison, Wisconsin and started a restaurant. Oh. Which I ran for three or four years and uh, came back, lived on the Russian River, built uh, houses. This is a course of seven or eight houses I've built. Uh, and on the water, uh, frequently, I mm-hmm. live next to the emotional world. It's the one that affects me the most. So right. I'm not a feeling type, but I sure do feel my feelings deeply. And then I got... Whoa, whoa, whoa,
1: whoa. What's that mean? I'm not a feeling type, but well, I feel you know, my emotions.
0: Well, you know, the typology that Jung brought forward, the thinking, sense, safe uh-huh. Yeah. So Myers-Briggs worked it. Uh, I talked to Jim about it earlier. He's a strong feeling type. I talk about feelings, and then I feel feelings. So these two functions are both active in me, but I wouldn't say I'm a feeling type. I'm more living in my head, okay, talking about feelings. So I recognize a lot of the feelings that I go through. I know it's real world. I like the idea of the sheaths, that the, uh, they come up with the astral sheath and the causal sheath. And uh-huh. We are multidimensional beings, and one of them is a very world of astral of feelings, emotional yeah. feelings.
1: So you live there, water, you... Were- a psychotherapist. Yeah. I
0: went exactly. I went to school, got a master's, became a clinical psychotherapist, became a um, group uh, certified group psychotherapist. Okay. So I worked with one time. I had four groups, uh-huh. and about ten individuals, okay. and the groups were fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because I could, I really felt the awareness of something bigger than the individual, and when the group uh, dynamic happened. The therapist truth trained backs away and he lets it happen. He lets everybody witness and experience the group mind working. Right. And that is so healing. It is. Actually, uh, I joked to my colleagues that uh, if I had a no-hitter, basically, I-, I did the best pitching game possible. And a no-hitter would be People come in, uh, I don't say a word, they talk for uh, you know an hour and 45 minutes, they pay me and they leave and I haven't said a there word. There you go. That would be the most <laughs> successful therapy. There you go. Not that would be a
1: great session. That yeah. would be a great session. So I did
0: that for a long time and then uh, read a, James Tillman's books about the ineffectiveness actually of psychotherapy, began to understand that I got into martial arts, became black belt in taekwondo uh-huh. and started to deal with people in a way that wasn't that healthy for them. Uh-huh. It was really me telling myself, I got to get out of this field. I don't want to just hold people's hands or explain to them spiritual valuations. Uh-huh. Uh, they got to discover it from themselves. They got to hit bottom, basically. Uh-huh. I can't interfere with that. So I left and became a commercial real estate broker and basically got my license in commercial real estate, uh, did land development, then I bought and sold buildings. And finally, uh, the end of that was the end of my second marriage. I had been married twice for 14 years each. Uh-huh. And now uh, I'm not a commercial broker, even though I'm still licensed. I'm. I got interested in making chocolate, so oh, it was no. another calling, yet another reincarnation. And now oh. this
1: is something people can really identify.
0: With. That's I figured oh. something <laughs> in me said I want to do something sweet. That's not about money. Uh-huh. Commercial real estate, uh, you know, tenants, toilets, and trash. It's painful. People go lose their businesses. They oh. the landlord gets shafted. You're working in, you know, large sums of money. I didn't like it at all. So I thought a chocolate maker is more authentically who I am. So I learned the art of making chocolate, which is very complex. And but it. it's it suits me. Okay. It's very complicated. I am like to say, you can tell I'm very mental, and I go through right. lots of machinations. Right. Chocolate goes through lots of machinations uh-huh. from bean to bar, and then you try to get this exquisite bar. I brought you guys a couple. Wow. One of them is a coffee, and the other was chai. Uh, I would you,
1: ask you to sing a few bars. But which would not, you <laughs> like,
0: coffee or chai, have I, said?
1: Oh, I would take a coffee.
0: Okay, but, uh, all right. At least Jim could Oh, Thank you. Thank
1: you. Uh, we'll share this with the listeners later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what have you found? What have you discovered in uh, for yourself in the chocolate stuff? What is so? Obviously, for you, making chocolate. It, by the way, what's the name of the
0: Cacao's meow?
1: Cacao's meow. It's
0: available in Petaluma. There's a few okay. stores There's here.
1: Stores that carry it. What, what have you, uh, uh, for you? There was something. That affected who you are. Yeah, and, when I left
0: commercial real estate and my life fell apart once again, uh, I got very empty, and I felt I had heard a calling. And it was from the plant kingdom, and it was from a, a, the nobility within the kingdom of plants. And I think the cacao plant and the cacao goddess is a very high form of the plant world, and I think she's screaming at human beings. Hmm. Why Why are you eating so much meat and destroying the plant world? You know, it's not that you have to stop eating meat, just don't do so much of it. And look at this. Look at chocolate. Chocolate is a representation of the epiphany of God's creativity in the plant world for the benefit of the humans. And you guys are totally blowing it, totally blowing it. So she's looking around for sensitives, and I was awake at that time, at least in that language. I'm mean, I uh-huh. asleep and dead to the human world, but I heard this calling.
1: Uh-huh.
0: So I said, okay, I'll do it. I'm, a, I'm an all-in kind of guy. So I got all-in, learned how to make chocolate, went to the Seattle uh, Chocolate Conference, learned how other people made chocolate, learned what the world of craft chocolate makers is all about, and just got more and more into it until finally I figured out the craft of making good quality chocolate. Very, very hot, very, 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 healthy. Happiness. So this is a bar of happiness.
1: It's good to hear in the world. Yes. For somebody who's feeling lost yes. and alone, exactly. to create a tool that connects one and connects you to happiness exactly. is, is a really important thing for you to have found for yourself Super important. and to bring to the world. So so just on, on the purely mundane, what makes chocolate chocolate? I mean, what? Tell me a little bit about that.
0: The okay, thing? the uh, cacao uh, pod uh-huh. uh, has to be grown within 10 degrees of the equator. Okay. So she loves warmthness. warmth. I think she's very feminine. Okay. Loves to be cuddled, loves the warmth. Grows up into a pod, which is like a pomegranate. That's obviously feminine. Uh-huh. Lots of these seeds. The cracker open is this wonderful uh, slimy, gooey, milky substance with all these little seeds in it. Uh-huh. Well, they take the seeds out, they ferment them. In about 10 days, they get this process going where the, you know, the, the bacteria and so forth interact, and it's sort of fermented foods. Uh, ferment, you know, humans have been intertwined with fermentation ever since the beginning of consciousness. So chocolate is part of one of those drugs that are created by nature. After 10 days, they dry it and then they put it into bags and they ship it. So my ba- my beans come from Brazil because there's no political question about Brazilian beans whereas in Africa a lot most chocolate makers use African beans and there's still a questionable history of, you know, labor and so forth. Uh-huh. So I love my Brazilian supplier and the beans are exquisite, exquisite quality. So you have to then take that bean, I let it sit for another year to let the fermentation continue. Uh, and then I roast it. I uh, break the husk off, which is called winnowing, Uh and then I take the nibs, I grind them for three days, a full three days of stone grinding, and I add other whole foods, like cinnamon or coffee or so into the grind, along with a couple different kinds of sugar. I would like to reduce the amount of sugar because it's poison, but I see it as representational of the dark side, the evil side, married to cacao, the goddess. This is our life. Our life of good and evil, mm-hmm. and it is represented in chocolate. So it's the marriage of cacao and sugar. You can't get them out of bed together. I tried. I tried using sugar alternatives. It doesn't work. Uh-huh. So I just got the highest quality, lowest sugar bar out there on the market, made with incredible amount of love and attention.
1: And I hear that part. I hear that part. You have people working with you, or are you doing this, you're doing this? You're doing it yourself. You're packaging
0: it. And- Everything. I found some pretty efficient methods. If uh, uh-huh. down the road I might find partners, and then we might just scale out. Right. Up. Right. But right now I'm satisfied with that's what's
1: wonderful. Going on. That, that is satisfied. a wonderful thing. Yeah. So, um, well, I hope this uh, this part of your journey will be a successful one. Thank you. That the lost in the w- the wilderness part will be a positive experience, so that you can find that place where there's a sense of shalom, a sense of peace mm-hmm. inside. It's really an important place for us uh, to come to.
0: It sounds like a blessing. I really appreciate and it. It's nice. thank
1: I, you. like getting to know you and connecting with you and welcome you into our Torah study as you've been coming regularly. And thank you. Uh, please keep it up, and we'll, we'll keep working on it. And thank you for coming here today. So you are all listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP Petaluma, California. I look forward to greeting you on our next segment program uh, on December 19th.
0: Comes that feeling again.